welcome to the Anatomy Cupboard. This is the third episode My Mother's Doll. After 20 years living overseas, um, away from my birth home, um, I made the fateful decision oh, about some eight years ago now to give up my academic chair and come home. And ostensibly with an ageing mother who's now 93, I didn't want to lose any more precious moments with her. And a part of my new life, I suppose, is tending to her uh, needs. The longer she can remain at home, the more intellectual stimulation she can get and the more people, COVID-willing, who can troop into the house for dinner, the longer she'll keep her independence. And it's been time, I think, well spent, and I've transformed into a rather good home cook. Apropos of these remarks, one of my chores is the house cleaning, which I most certainly do not enjoy. But in my mother's bedroom is a small doll. I think it's a girl doll who's dressed in a long baby-style taffeta dress and who appears rosy-cheeked as if sleeping, very much like a live toddler. She has a slight frown on her face, her lips pouted ever so slightly into what I believe is referred to as a cupid's bow. I don't want anyone to presume that I've obsessed about this item in the bedchamber, rather to appreciate that the thing is actually pretty creepy. And I don't think I've got an abnormal fear of dolls. It's called a pediophobia, as it's called, or worse still, an irrational fear of models, be they made of wax or synthetic mannequins, but which have been designed to look human. That phobia is called automatonophobia. Now, I didn't just make that up. Actually, in another podcast, I want to talk about those magnificent wax models of dissection one can find in the Museum La Specola in Florence, and of its great 18th century wax modeler, Clemente Sussini, and his predecessor, the ascetic Jesuit priest, Gaetano Giulia Zumbo. And those guys are <coughs> for another time. But this story of my mother's doll made me think of the great 17th century Dutch embalmer, Frederick Reich, whose embalming preservation techniques were designed to make the dead, uh, he specialised in embalming children, appear precisely as if they were merely sleeping. And even his detractors confessed that a Reich baby, once he got his hands on it, appeared to be living and only, as one put it, robbed of its soul. Now that's pretty high praise indeed. It should be pointed out, although I don't know how apocryphal the story is, that when Russia's great and fearsome Tsar Peter the Great visited Reich's home, which was where uh, he exhibited his private anatomy collection for around the fee of a doctor's visit, when the Tsar visited in about 1697, Reich had positioned one of the embalmed babies at the front entrance, uh, where the Tsar sort of swept in and catching sight of the baby, apparently bent down to kiss it. Now I have to say that that story would normally sound ridiculous until you visit the Kunstkammerle Museum of Ethnology and Anthropology, which is in St. Petersburg, where Peter bought and transferred Reich's Amsterdam collection. And some of the specimens are now on the fourth floor of a 
beautiful building which sits on a small strip of land called Vasilyevsky Island, which you can reach by a bridge from the top end of, of town. And there there are several little babies that are fixed in preservative bottles, personally made up by Elias himself. The eyes of these little babies in fixative are open. The expression's quizzical, I might say actually soulful, but for that theft that we mentioned. And after seeing them, it makes that Tsar Peter the story, uh, Peter the, uh, the great story of him bending down from his imposing height at six foot four or six foot five to kiss the dead child. It makes that story sound pretty plausible. No one knows how Reich preserved whole bodies, but it was some cut down onto the veins and then installation of large volumes of tallow and mutton fat and talc down to the smallest capillaries and a concoction of mercuric sulphide, which is called cinnabar, which gave the face and the periphery of the body that sort of reddish glow. It's like a sort of permanent internal rouge. And when Reich sold his collection through the Tsar's intermediary, a rather shadowy medico called Lawrence Blumenstrost, Reich handed over on a single page his secret formula for preservation with what he called the Lycor balsamicus. And alas, the formula's been lost, but about 50 years after Reich's death, a physician, a fellow called Christian Rieger, trying to reproduce the effect without success. The pathologist Johann Leberkun, examining bits of tissue that had been embalmed by Reich, couldn't find anything remarkable under the microscope. And so this whole area of Reich's Lycor balsamicus, his secret formula, remains a bit of a mystery. But there should be no doubt about the importance of embalming in dissection. It was, one may say, the holy grail of dissection itself. Until the body or any part of it could be preserved, the dissections of corpses had to be very swift and very ordered. First to be examined was the abdomen and the intestines, which would most rapidly decompose. Next was the thorax with its heart and lungs, and the brain after that, which if left, would soon liquefy into a stinking mess. I'm sorry, but there's simply no other way to say it. And finally, then the limbs and genitals, which, and I apologise again to the squeamish, would turn into the sort of consistency of leather. The lasting element after all of the muscles, which became like strips of biltong, was to reveal the smooth permanency of the bones. And indeed, the articulated skeleton, which was the first created by Vesalius after he dissected the remains of a bigamist and murderer, Jakob Karabon Gabayla in Basel. Vesalius's skeleton is the oldest dissected and rearticulated skeleton in the world, and it can be seen in the Basel Anatomische Museum. So these sort of dissections were typically conducted in the winter months so that the process of decay would be retarded and they'd be surrounded by little aromatic candles. When you see the dissection gallery at the University of Padua, you can enter a small passage and stand where the cadaver would normally have been lying. And the cramped tears rise almost vertically. Uh, this was designed by its director, Girolamo Hieronymus Fabrici ab Aqua Pendente, preferred the Latin cognomen Fabricius, and with standing room only, so that no spectator 
is more than 30 feet away from the action, so to speak, away from the cadaver dissection when you go in there. Just imagine it. The rite of passage for dissectors and surgeons was that ever-present smell of rotting flesh on your hands, on your clothes, in your nostrils. Having smelt that once, it's not something one forgets or completely adjusts to. And in Fabricius's theatre of dissection in central Padre, if you go there, one can be, became overwhelmed. It's more than likely that sufferers would effectively have had to have fainted standing up. The only seat in the house was for Fabricius himself, who probably took delight in watching his colleagues and students pass out around him. painters, sometimes truly great artists, following around the anatomist and drawing or painting their dissections, was the only way some sort of record of these ephemeral events was then possible. The imagery produced of these dissections was a testament then, a combination of precision anatomy, but also of the power of the occasion. But the lack of any preservative, what we call a fixative, would have made the whole experience of dissection almost unbearable. When the Oxford anatomist Thomas Willis was dissecting the brains of victims of execution that King Charles II had allowed him to dissect, the stench was so bad that the dons in the Bodleian Library above complained vociferously to the dean about the smell Willis and his team were dredging downstairs. Willis invited Christopher Wren along to draw his dissections, and these images became the basis for his 1664 book, The Anatomia Cerebri, which for the first time described his eponymous circle of Willis, a little network of joining arteries that supplies the bulk of the brain substance. Wren was still a young man, but found the work disgusting. It, it was before he would design about 50 churches in London and its outskirts after the Great Fire of 1665, and <clears throat> before Wren would lead the Royal Society as one of its earlier presidents. Despite these misgivings, the preservation and the dissection of the brain became its own obsession. In the times of the Crusades, many knights and even kings would make their desires known for how the different parts of their body should be handled upon their death. In a tale by the chronicler Henry Huntington, he describes an account of the transport in 1135 to Reading of the body of King Henry I, born in 1068 and died in 1135, after Henry had died in Rouen. The king was decapitated with removal of his brain and eyes for burial in Rouen, and the remainder of the body was dismembered and packed in salt and ox hides. The trip proved impossible with the death of the man who'd extracted the king's brain, and the stench particularly horrid, the corpse leaking a repellent fluid that forced the travelling party to dispose of it in Cayenne. 
Leonardo da Vinci, in examining and drawing the skull, postulated that the senso comune, the integrating heart of the brain, if you will, lay at the junction of a line drawn across the top of the orbit and one drawn vertically through its base. It was here, too, that the philosopher René Descartes thought the presence of the small pineal gland, which he was convinced was the seat of the soul. Like a good philosopher, he matched his words with his dissections in an effort to discover this structure, what he called the canarium. But he lamented in his book The Passion de l'âme that by the time the anatomists had done what they needed to do with the corpses, the bit Descartes was looking for had rotted and dissolved into nothing. Now, my apologies to the sensitive at heart here, but such were the logistics not only of the dissecting surgeons, but also of those interested in the physical truths anatomical dissection could reveal. So it wasn't surprising then that embalming became pretty important. It would allow a dissection to be a leisurely process where people could come and learn from specimens for years and uh, where a dissection could be carried out throughout the entire year. Actually, it wasn't until August Wilhelm von Hoffmann discovered formaldehyde in 1868 that this became a reality, something that was discovered a, a decade earlier by the Russian chemist Alexander Butlerov, so-called dioxymethylene. But let's not split the hairs. The history of embalming is rather complicated. So, for that matter, is the history of taxidermy. And for those interested, I might recommend a little grisly masterpiece by the philosophy professor Stephen Asmer of Chicago, um, beautifully entitled Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads. It's a great little book, great read. We don't, for example, know a whole lot about Egyptian mummification processes, but a millennium on, the medieval physician Amboise Paré wrote quite a wonderful how-to manual on how to preserve a body, which, as far as I can ascertain, revolved around submerging it into a vat of wine. Most of the earliest attempts to preserve bodies were essentially marinations of one sort or another. Reich's rival, the irascible self-promoter Louis de Bills, said to be, if not the finest, certainly the swiftest person to vivisect cats and dogs in the 17th century, had his own techniques for preservation, which he largely kept a secret. But in one treatise, he revealed that just to preserve one whole human body might require 50 litres of vinegar, 20 litres of brandy and 60 kilograms of black pepper. Reich was known to rotate his bodies from one kind of pickling bath to another over months, sort of thing country ladies do for cucumbers and onions. When Lord Horatio Nelson was brought back from Trafalgar, he was kept in a barrel of brandy until they arrived at Southampton, and then it was replaced, albeit at much lower volume after its journey amongst the sailors, it was replaced with wine. Whether it's true that that's where the phrase to tap the admiral, virtually meaning someone who would drink almost anything actually came from, is debatable. Reich became so famous as an embalmer more through his injection techniques. But when Sir Isaac Newton died, Reich was his replacement as a fellow of the Académie des Sciences in Paris. Both the Dutch and the English regarded Reich very highly for his 
preserving secret that Lycor Balsamicus, when the young British Admiral Sir William Berkeley was fatally shot through the throat with a musket ball in the Second Anglo-Dutch Maritime War off the Flemish coast in 1666, the victorious Dutch Admiral Michiel de Reiter invited Reich to patch up Berkeley's body. Uh, in Zealand, Reich made the body so presentable that when it arrived at Westminster Abbey, Samuel Pepys, who was in the entourage, described it as, quote, looking like the fresh carcass of an infant, unquote. Well, anyway, it's hard to overestimate the importance of a good embalming technique at that time, and Reich made the city of Amsterdam famous as a mecca for anatomists and dissectors. Sometimes this embalming thing, however, can go a little far, and such was the story of the curious London dentist Martin Van Butchel. Mitchell was born on the 5th of February 1735 in Eagle Street, which is near Red Lion Square. There's a set of gardens out there now, but for those who know London Street, it's a short walk uh, to the Sir John Soane's Museum, or the other way to the Royal College of Anaesthetists building. And Eagle Street is now squeezed between a decent Chinese restaurant and a Mexican takeout. The Van Butchels were Flemish. His father, John Van Butchel, was the principal tapestry maker to His Majesty King George II. Young Martin entered the family of Viscountess Talbot as a groom of the chambers, where he stayed for nine years, although he had been sought after by Sir Thomas Robinson as a travelling companion for his son. These were the natural ways and inclinations of the aristocracy at the time. How and precisely why Martin <coughs> transferred to the tutelage of the surgeon anatomists William and John Hunter is unknown, but by 1775 Martin described himself as, quote, a perpetual pupil to John Hunter, unquote. The two had become particularly close, and it's likely that Martin's interest in dentistry aligned with that of the difficult younger John Hunter, who would in 1771 publish his own natural history of the teeth, uh, with the dental scholars James Spence and William Ray. Hunter was for some reason fascinated with the teeth and I think was interested in the way the decidual or baby teeth can grow back, performing experiments on lizards removing their tails and in antelopes, the nilgai cutting off their antlers so that you could see how they grow back again. As for the general public, uh, as I shall mention a little later, there was a great interest in false teeth. These were known as Waterloo teeth, since the teeth from those who had fallen in that battle were taken from the mouths and refashioned for alignment onto ivory dentures to make them look as real and as natural as possible. Very nice profession, that. But perhaps no less ghoulish than wearing a dead fox around one's neck as a stole, which was also quite the fashion when my mother was a young lady in the 1950s. 
Anyhow, Martin most likely started his clinical practice of dentistry at Mount St Grosvenor Square in 1769, advertising himself as a man, quote, who cures the toothache, unquote, and who claims to cure those who had been much hurt by operators, esteemed famous little self-promotion of this type, never really hurt. But this practice, however exceptional, or if nothing more than prosaic, was overshadowed by his public persona. He was a keen horse rider, and the most fashionable place to be seen riding horses uh, was on a Sunday, which he resolutely took off around Rotten Row, which is at the southern end of Hyde Park. And that track was opened by King William III at the end of the 17th century as a throughway between Kensington Palace and St James Palace, and as a consequence was once known as the Rue de Roi, the King Street. But it became bastardised or corrupted, you might say, and colloquialised into Rotten Row. The man Martin Van Butchel became a minor celebrity of sorts, was instantly recognisable with a long white flowing beard which he proclaimed uh, brought him some virility and a broad-brimmed black hat and matching black boots. J. Menzies Campbell, a Scottish dentist and dental historian of the 20th century, describes him, that is Van Butchel, in a 1953 essay on Van Butchel in the tradition of laissez-faire anti-Semitism, so pervasive of 1950s London, as attired, quote, like an eccentric Jewish mendicant, unquote. What's more to add to the aura of eccentricity, Van Butchel rode a pony which he had painted either fully purple or at times just with purple spots or dots, and he carried a large white bone, said to be like the jawbone of an ass, with which he'd hit little passing urchins. Van Butchel was an inventor of sorts, particularly of hernia trusses and restraining horse bands, and was imparted by a Dutch physician the secret, which remains to this day a secret, for the definitive treatment of the troublesome scourge of anal fistula, a chronic discharging anal infection. For the latter Van Butchel, if successful, actually, latter operation treatment of a fistula, demanded a full 2% of his previous year's profits up front to be returned to the customer should the treatment fail. Martin would only see patients between 10 in the morning and 1 in the afternoon, and only at his house at 56 Mount Street. In fact, there was no amount of money, up to a thousand guineas had been offered once by the wife of a prominent judge over such an anal affliction. There was no amount of money that could lure Martin out of his home for consultation. He was particularly paranoid that others might find out his secret and he would only examine patients alone. Nevertheless, these things became so successful that he gave up a lucrative dentist practice and here I'm returning to the Waterloo teeth again, that had him charging and receiving £42 for a whole lower denture and £63 for an upper row at a time when the average pay for a labourer might have amounted to, say, around £10 for an entire year and where someone like William Hunter could have made up to £10,000 a year. Talk about wealth disparity gap, that was it. After this, Martin became a public parody 
inserting the most bizarre notices in the World Telegraph or the Argus, the Morning Herald, the Morning Post. He claimed the cure of scrofula, a nest of lymph nodes in the neck from tuberculosis, with his mystical so-called balm of life. Now, there might this be enough for a sort of parlour story, but Van Butchel's claim to fame and further eccentricity centres around the events about really after the death of his 36-year-old wife Mary at 2.30 in the morning on January the 14th, 1775, from pleurisy and empyema of the lungs. It's a chronic infection, a sort of euphemism for multiple lung abscesses, most likely a result of tuberculosis. Of course, the first thing to do, or that you do do as a grieving husband, is to get your wife embalmed by your friends. That's what he did, William Hunter, and his trusty assistant with whom William would later have a falling out, a fellow called William Crookshank. Now, Wyvern Butchell would not only do such a thing, but actively participate in the embalming of his own wife is unknown, although there was a clause in his marriage settlement, an 18th century prenup, if you will, that allowed him to use properties of the deceased if she remained above ground, unquote. Perhaps that's a little uncharitable, but it is a possible explanation. The technique has been presumed to mirror that Hunter was using and describing in his lecture series on anatomy at the time. The first part, to bleed the body and replace that volume with injected turpentine and vermilion for colour. The second stage, to remove the contents of the abdomen and thorax and then to press by hand pressure all of the organs of their blood to express that, after which they were then washed and cleaned, along with the pressure upon the face and the hands to press all the blood out of them. And this would be followed by emptying the bladder and the rectum of their foul contents, Hunter recommending that this procedure should take some hours rather than minutes, and then to wash all of the parts with spirits of wine so that the third stage was the repeat injection of the body and then to fill the cavities of the body with camphor to close the cavities and then wash the body itself with fragrant oils. The body would then be placed in a box half filled with plaster of Paris which would absorb extraneous moisture. But Butchell not only watched all of this, he was an active participant, writing in his diary that by 8am they had already taken off the plaster death mask that by afternoon Crookshank had injected the body with five full pints of turpentine and before nine in the morning Hunter had begun to open and embalm in Van Butchell's words the body of my wife. I opened the abdomen to put in the remainder of powders and I put them between the thighs three arquebusada bottles, one full of camphorated spirits, very rich of the gum, one containing eight ounces of oil of rosemary, and then the other two, a two ounces oil of lavender. Extraordinary. Camphorated wine was used to prevent the larvae of insects from infesting bodies. And yes, it was that brutal. Some of the anatomists, like the Frenchman Honoré Fragonard, preferred to polish these bodies with a lacquer varnish, treating them like a treasured piece of mahogany. 
If you wanted a rosy glow to the lips and the cheek sort of makeup, you could inject a little cinnabar, which is a slurry, as I've said, of mercuric sulphide. Actually, the varnish Henri Fragonard got was from his cousin, the Rococo painter, uh, also known as Henri Fragonard. William Hunter was so pleased with the results of Van Butchell's wife that he invited the botanist Sir Joseph Banks to come along and have a look at it, along with the esteemed physician Sir William Heberden and the president of the College of Physicians at the time, Sir John Pringle, as well as the politician Sir Thomas Wynne and his good lady, and Dr Salander, who was the assistant to the great naturalist Carolus Linnaeus and who had travelled with Banks on the Pacific expedition of James Cook to discover Australia. So this was quite a little party that they had after embalming Van Butchell's wife. And he asked each uh, invitee, by the way, to bring his wife. I'm not sure if that was more of a warning than an invitation. So if you went to the trouble of embalming your wife, what would you do with it? Well, Van Butchell popped it into a case with a glass lid in the front room of his house where for a small fee the common people could come and view it, although there were so many that he ended up putting out a public advertisement in the St James Chronicle to say that only those who knew him personally could come and view his wife Maria. It was apparently okay if it was by special arrangement, but I suppose enough of those common folk. Now the time lapsed afterwards is poorly documented, but Van Butchel attracted another woman, remarrying a woman called Elizabeth, and under her complaint that her predecessor, Mary, was still in the front room, she objected strenuously enough, and that forced Van Butchell to send Mary to the Royal College of Surgeons Museum, not far away at Lincoln's Inn's Fields. Now, if you walk left from there and turn left again, these days you're at the BBC headquarters at the top end of High Holborn, so that gives some people some orientation. No, the, the college is not on a monopoly board. Well, that actually sounds like the nice story. But in actuality, Van Butchell probably kept the embalmed body of his first wife in his front room until he died on October the 30th, 1814. Because on the 14th of the following year, the Board of Curators of the Royal College of Surgeons received a letter from Martin's son and executor of his will, Edward Martin Van Butchell, offering the body to the museum, which was accepted and put in what was known colloquially as the curio room next to a body prepared by the surgeon John Sheldon in 1775. I'll get into that in a minute. Now, actually, there's little doubt as to the exact date of death, but Martin himself was interred on November the 5th by the Reverend E. Williams in St George's Church in Bayswater Road, which is now... Hanover Square, opposite Hyde Park. This place was closed as a burial ground in 1854, and about 60 years later it was converted into a park with the gravestones left as decorations. It's now a housing development. And for all these advertisements in all the magazines and all the wide following, there wasn't a single public obituary about Martin Van Butchell. Little is known of his nine children, although his second son Isaac drowned on June the 29th, 1806. The butcher was the strictest teetotaler, always dining alone away from his family and separate from his current wife and children. 
If he wanted anyone from his family, he would whistle at them, and each one had a particular specific whistle note. He really does sound quite ghastly. That other son, Edward Martin, had been his father's surgical apprentice and was convicted, actually, of manslaughter after perforating a patient's rectum in his half-moon office in Piccadilly. Edward Martin Van Butchel was, however, released from Newgate Prison, where murderers were kept before execution, after being acquitted at the court of the Old Bailey. I'm just adding a little bit to the extra story. Now, this whole thing is not quite finished. I mentioned that Van Butchel's embalmed wife had company in the curio room. Alongside it was the body of possibly the mistress of another surgeon, John Sheldon. Like Van Butchel, Sheldon was a personal friend of John Hunter and had been apprenticed to the surgeon Henry Watson. As a staff member of the Lock Hospital in London, Sheldon had a patient with terminal TB, what in those days was called physis, which just means the wasting disease. And Sheldon became attached to this patient, a Miss Johnson, who, knowing that she was dying, apparently asked Sheldon to embalm her. Now, this all gets a little creepy. In August of 1784, about 10 years after Johnson was mummified, a Monsieur Barthélemy Fourjas saint fond who was of all things a travelling French professor of geology at the Museum of Natural History in Paris, visits Sheldon, along with the discoverer of oxygen, Joseph Priestley, and the inventor of the steam engine, James Watt, and they all get together and they see Sheldon's local museum. St. Fond noted it all down in a book about his travels, Voyage en Angleterre, en Écosse et aux îles Hébrides, the Voyage in England, Scotland of the Hebrides, a nice little travel guide of the English North, if ever there was one. And he said in his book that Sheldon kept the body in his bedroom. And he goes on to make a big deal about how beautiful the hair on the mummy was, fine brown hair, and that she was lying extended out on a bed with a glass cover that could be lifted off so that Sheldon could run the arms through a range of movement and show everyone just how flexible the embalmed corpse actually was. The corpse was naked, of course, and Sheldon often spoke also of the elasticity of the bosom. This gets really quite creepy stuff. Now, that's getting a bit off. Sheldon told St. Fond that this was his mistress, who he tenderly loved, and that he had looked after her in her last illness, she requesting that he keep her body by his side. But after the death of Sheldon in 1808, Sheldon's wife, Rebecca, wrote to the Board of Curators of the Royal College of Surgeons, and asked them to take the body. And it sat with the board and its curator, an old friend of John Hunter, William Clift, who only re-inquired about the body in 1816. So eight years later. Here Sheldon's wife merely suggests that Sheldon was one of the people looking after Miss Johnson, and through their kindness did she request that someone embalm her. Sheldon's wife actually says that the doctors drew lots for it. And she also says that so much camphor was used in the preparation that she put a little bird in the room only to find it dead from the camphor fumes the next morning. Of course, she didn't have something useful to say about why she had tolerated her husband keeping the dead body of some naked 24-year-old woman in his bedroom for over 30 years.
It wasn't until 1838 that Clift was approached by Sheldon's nephew, William Sweeting, who called the body that of a Sarah Stone, who was a medical artist who'd worked with Sheldon as well as with William Cruikshank. But as for one man's beauty, an anonymous observer wrote of the corpse in 1899 after seeing it in the old curio room at the college, that it was, quote, hideous and shrunken and looked hard, unquote. Another writing of Maria van Butchel's body <coughs> right next to it described that as, quote, a wretched mockery of a once lovely woman with now a mahogany-coloured face but with a remarkably fine set of teeth, unquote. Well, at least old Martin van Butchel's false choppers were good for something. Oh, and also the mummified parrot that had been left between Mary's legs, Mary Van Butchel, was to that writer far less repulsive, quote, than the larger biped, unquote. It's all a ghastly story. The writer goes on to describe Sheldon's body next door uh, in 1857, quote, as even more ugly than her neighbour, unquote. There's like a local commentator, Charles Cobb, an ardent supporter of cremation in an age where there was pressure on space in London's old cemeteries and who argued in a uh, pamphlet on it that it would be a far more hygienic uh, thing to do to have cremated these bodies was even more scathing. Cobb described both college mummies as, quote, loathsome relics, unquote, that should, in his opinion, be tossed onto a bonfire and not be lamented. Well, I'm putting a bit of words into his mouth, but he did say that although they might be educational and interesting, that any other old bits of rubbish should be so treated. Well, sadly, there are no photographs of these two bodies, which seems a little strange, but the irony is that the whole display, including poor old Mary Van Butchel and the mysterious Sheldon body, were destroyed by a direct hit on the college building from a Luftwaffe bombing raid in 1941. As a coder, there's a group of people with what the psychiatrists call the paraphilias, those who derive some sexual or other gratification from bizarre objects and practices. The Renaissance idea that the best art could seek to emulate the finest Greco-Roman statues is a clue to some of this, and it goes back to Clisiphus, who was said to have violated the statue of a goddess in the temple of Samos. Good heavens. This little obsession became known as a galmatophilia, the passionate love of a statue. But it also applies to those overly fascinated with dolls and mannequins and wax dummies and the like. The celebrated painter Oscar Kokoschka, who had a raging affair with Alma Mahler, the widow of the composer Gustav Mahler, became so obsessed with his mistress of three years that he employed a professional toy maker to make a life-sized effigy of Alma, which Oscar would then take with him to the theatre and to restaurants. It's hard to understand this sort of obsession unless, as 
Alma refused to acknowledge Oscar in public. Oscar was using the whole thing as a kind of public revenge or even somehow treating the whole thing as an open art show. Anyhow, Oscar ended up inviting his friends to his house where he drenched the soft doll in wine, ceremoniously beheading it and then chucking it into the dustbin outside. So now I've come full circle on my doll story. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time with the story of Michelangelo's nose. <laughs>